You know, this, this series that we launched last, uh, really two weeks ago on the seven deadly sins have really already challenged us. In fact, I've talked to a handful in here over the last two weeks where they were like, Pastor, you've, you've already stepped on my toes. Um, and I was like, oh, that wasn't me. Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, that was the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I'm looking forward to diving into this next topic, um, a topic um, that one, oftentimes uh, we, we maybe over, we bypass or we overlook in Scripture, and it's a topic of envy. It's a topic of envy. I mean, nobody wants to raise their hand and, and honestly admit, I want what somebody else has, right? I mean, all for honesty in church, we, we, we don't want to do that. Just like last week, we didn't want to be the one who said, I'm prideful. I have pride and I need to change. And so today, I want us to look at a small portion of Scripture from the Old Testament. And before I tell you the book that we're going to be in, you have to promise me that you're not going to have any preconceived notions uh, when I tell you what book of the Bible we're going to be in. You guys promise me that? Can you do your best? All right, turn with me to the book of Numbers. Yeah, <laughs> already. Oh no, the book of Numbers. We know that God loved math because there's an entire book called Numbers in the Bible. Come on, guys. That, that was a pastor dad joke. We're going to be in Numbers, Numbers chapter 11. Come on. I could have went with something different, but... You know, we, we learn... We're going to be in Numbers chapter 11. We, we learn a lot about the human condition. Uh, we learn a lot about sinfulness uh, by watching children. Uh, how many of you are parents in here? Um, right? So a whole lot of you. How many of you uh, could see or maybe even still can see sinful behavior in your children? Right? They're disobedient. Yeah, my parents are in the back and they're raising both of their hands. You know, ever, have you ever seen a child play with a toy and then in comes another kid and the room is full of toys, but they want that one specific toy that the other kid is playing with? You ever, or maybe it's your teenager, right? It's the teen and they want that one specific chair that their sibling is sitting in. Or they wanted that last slice of pizza, but their sibling, right? We, we all want something, right? Maybe it's the treat and you give the child a treat and they're like, well, I really, I want that treat. I don't, I don't want the one that you just gave me, right? It, it can be as simple as a seat on the swing, and there's open swings. Like, we just had this situation just recently with our kids. You know, our, our children, um, if we let them eat sweets, they would eat sweets every waking moment that they were alive. And so uh, we took them out uh, to, uh, to Mooville uh, down in Nashville because they love to see the cows and all the animals, even though we have all of those things at our house. It's different when we go to somebody else's place and they have them, Right? And they had a swing set there, and Esther and Naomi, and they're not in here, so I can tell the story. Um, right, Esther and Naomi are five years apart. And of course, you know, the 12-year-old likes to argue with the six-year-old, right? And they began to argue over a swing. They began to argue, and there were five other open swings, but Esther and Naomi wanted the same exact 
swing. And it went from, I want to sit there to, if you don't get off, I'm going to push you off of that. It instantly escalated like that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like parents, I see you. You're like, yes, I know what you're talking about, right? But the thing is, is that if you, if you've ever realized this, they get the toy, right? They get the seat, they get the treat, and here's what you discover. Your child is still unsatisfied. They're still unsatisfied. Well, why is that? Well, church, I want us to make no mistake this morning. The issue is not an external issue. It's an internal one. Envy is an internal problem. Envy is a symptom of sin that every single one of us has. Every one of us. Not just your spouse, not just your kid, but you too, me too. We all have the internal sin problem or symptom of envy. The branch of envy really comes from the trunk of pride and is full of little branches. Jealousy, competitiveness, control, comparison. Criticism, complaint, ingratitude, even hatred comes from envy. And even the marketing world, right? Our culture knows how prone we are to envy and greed. And what do they do but pry on your discontentment? They tell you and they sell you that you should have more and that there is better and newer and improved and updated and you have to have it. They use external temptations to appeal to the internal problem of envy. As I begin to study out this portion of scripture that we're looking at, I could not help but be drawn back to the book of Genesis where Satan brought this same exact concept to Adam and Eve. When he asked Adam and Eve, in essence, can you do what you want? That really was the question, though he did not specifically state it in that way. Yeah, except we cannot eat from this one specific tree. And in essence, Satan's like, well, I bet it's the best tree and you're missing out. It's the best tree. You're missing out. And so Adam and Eve sacrificed the entire garden for one tree. They sacrificed an unhindered relationship with God for one tree. And it's been the same way ever since. Ever since. People have continued to disregard the goodness of God and sacrifice their own life on the altar of envy. If you're a note taker in here, I want you to note this this morning, that at the center of envy is a heart that doesn't trust God. At the center of envy is a heart that does not trust God. This then is the exact reason that we are often so dissatisfied and have no contentment, which leads to us being dismayed with this life. It's why we're disappointed when other people get what we think we deserve, or we get what we think we don't deserve. At the very core of envy is a mistrust of God. Now, we don't really want to admit it, but we, we don't really have to, do we? I mean, our life truly bears evidence of envy. Every one of us. Our mouth will eventually give testimony. 
right? Our mindset and our motives will eventually bear or, or work their way out of us. I love what Jesus said, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So whatever is inside of us will eventually work its way out unless we're doing something to combat that sinful nature inside of us. So our dissatisfaction and the goodness of God will eventually fuel our envy and it will rob us of joy in this life. Envy makes us unable to enjoy the things that have been given to us. And the nation of Israel, really in Scripture, serves as a primary example for us today. God has freed them from over 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. He guides them out. He gives them daily provision in the form of what the Bible calls manna. And they never had to worry or wonder about food. And they're free. And so this is what we see in text, the deal here. What, what's the problem? And so if you would, look with me at chapter number 11 of Numbers. I'm going to start in verse number 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortune. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Look at verse number four. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And if you have a physical Bible, I would ask of you to note that one single phrase. Our strength is dried up. And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Anyone um, hear your children in that phrase? We have nothing but this. And that's it. That's it? Yeah. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we ask that you would illuminate just these few verses of Scripture to us to show us what happens with an envious heart and how that leads to discontentment in this life. And it ruins relationships, Lord. It, it causes us uh, to be um, discouraged with the blessings that you, you have given to us. And, and it leads really to an ungrateful or an unthankful heart, which really is where sinfulness stems from according to your word. And so, Lord, help us to see uh, what we need to this morning. Holy Spirit, guide us in these truths today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Israel's attitude here in the text and their actions really sum up how envy distorts our view of God. I mean, can you imagine for, for a moment with me, the nation of Israel wanting to go back to slavery and their, their reasoning for wanting to go back to slavery was free food. Did you guys see it in the text? It's, we want to go back to slavery because of the free food. But, but you were a slave, Israel. Well, yes, I, I didn't forget that I was a slave. I didn't forget that they used to beat my children, that, that, that the other children that I had were fed to crocodiles and drowned in the river. I didn't forget that, but, but they had leeks. They had melons. 
They, they had garlic. They, they had meat. I want to go back. I want to go back for food. And as I'm reading this portion of scripture, I'm like, you've got to be kidding, right? You would sacrifice your children on the altar of I want different food? But yet I'm sitting here reading this scripture and the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, but don't, don't you see yourself right here in the text? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we all see ourselves right here in the text? I mean, Solomon in all of his glory and wisdom said that let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all of the day. And surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Isn't that so easy? Isn't it so easy in this life, if you would just leave that verse there for a moment, isn't it easy to envy sinners? It's easy. It's easy for us to think about the things that other people have and have a craving and a desire for those same exact things. It's easy for us to fall into that trap. Why? Because on this side of eternity, it may, it may seem at times that sin is going unpunished and that righteousness is oftentimes not rewarded. Doesn't it seem that way? That sin is not being punished and righteousness is not being rewarded, especially not in this culture. But instead, instead church, Christian, in here this morning, instead of you and I being jealous of the wicked, we should be determined to have an eternal perspective that is rooted in the fear of the Lord. And that means that I have an active recognition of the greatness and the righteousness of God in this life. I mean, if, if this life was all there would be, then we would have much more reason to envy sinners. Yet as the, the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you have never, ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, I would highly recommend it. I would recommend it because it covers a vast array of topics and you get a beautiful picture of the life of a man who was given all wisdom and still fell away from the Lord, Solomon. And if you don't know Solomon's story, Solomon was given wisdom and led Israel to do great things for God, but he had a thousand wives and concubines, and he led them, or he was led by them into idol worship. He was removed from being king, and at the end of his life, he pens the book of Ecclesiastes, and some of the final words that he says is to fear the Lord and follow his commandments before he died. That was what he said to the believer. And in Ecclesiastes, we hear from Solomon that there surely is a hereafter, that there is a heavenly place where we will be with our creator. And, and therefore, wisdom means that we should live with a fear of the Lord who is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. I mean, God has been so good to us, has he not? 
He's blessed us with so many things. He's promised, promised us more than we could ever fathom or even imagine in this life. So you and I, we should be in awe of God. Should we not? We should, we should fear God. And I, and I don't mean like, like the dog that's been beaten and you're cowering in the back of, of the kennel. No, we should have a healthy respect and reverence for the one who has not only created us, but sent his son so that we could be saved and now sustains us and gives us a place after this life. But how many times do you and I pine away for that which we don't have? So often, we, we pursue with great passion that which we think we can't live without. And we begin to grow to despise the blessings that God gives to us every single day. I often will pray with our prayer team that we would never take for granted the breath that is in our lungs. Because without it, we can't live. And as I talk with my wife, my wife often and we pray for our church, we oftentimes will pray for the church that we would never grow weary or tired of speaking out loud that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is merciful and grace-filled, that God is also a just God. I pray that we would never, ever, ever grow tired of speaking out loud that, that God has a plan for us and it may not look the way that we want it to look or think that it should look. I pray that we never grow tired of, of knowing that God's good gifts come to us oftentimes in the form of our spouse or our kids. And all God's people said? I mean, I mean honestly... I think I, I've shared this in the past, but there was a time in my life where it seemed like everything was a mess. Anybody ever been there before? <laughs> Even the baby is a... <laughs> and I remember sitting back one day with a, a buddy of mine, and he asked this question of me, um, we had been talking over coffee for about 45 minutes. And he said, um, he's like, Josh, can I, can I ask you a really personal question? And of course, he knew the answer to that. We had been friends for years and, and I trusted him. And, and he said, I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to ask you, if you woke up today with only the things that you thanked God for yesterday, what would you have today? And I think I could count on maybe one hand and that was it. If I woke up today with only the things that I voiced out loud that I was thankful to God for, what would I have? And let me tell you about that moment in time where I felt like the Holy Spirit had picked up a two by four and just crushed me over, over the side of my head. 
I was no longer grateful for the the blessings that God had brought into my life and were continuously bringing into my life to sustain me. And I was frustrated because it didn't look this way. And in that ungratefulness, all of these other characteristics of, of a fleshly nature began to pour out of my life. Complaint. Criticism. Man. It's just crazy that that's the path that our flesh wants us to take because church, it's so sad that we don't recognize and realize that envy is an assault on the grace and the goodness of God. Envy is an assault. It flies in the face of everything that God wants to do for us. And in this portion of scripture here, the children of Israel despised the manna that was given to them to sustain them. They despised it. They couldn't stand it, even though they had enough to make it. They had enough to not worry. And yet they despised the gift that came from God. Like, God, you're not fair. We don't deserve this. We don't trust that this is the best thing for us. And, the, and I've, I've also realized in this life that in the complaint, we often can't even hear our own voice. In our own complaint, we can't even hear the complaining. We can't hear the criticizing. We can't hear the comparing. And so church, the first thing I want you to note this morning, the first element that I want you to note this morning is that envy dries out your life. It dries out your life. Do you guys see the word, the, the, the phrase in the text? Let's look back at it, if you would. Verse number six. What is the first couple of, of words? But now our strength is dried up. That word strength here in the Hebrew doesn't mean my physical strength. It is my spiritual well-being, my my mental status here in the text is what this word is talking about. I mean, we, we are trying to learn something here and it's like, man, Moses, what are you even trying to share with us? My strength is dried up? It's this, that envy sucks the life out of you and it makes you miserable. That's what, that's what Moses is trying to communicate here. It's an internal problem that is a result of self-focus and it makes us spiritually and mentally sick. That's what it is. Envy has been described throughout the ages by so many great writers in a way like this that says it is an ulcer for the soul. A disease that devours its host from the inside out. But one of my favorite, one of my favorite descriptions of envy was by a man named Frederick Bauchner. And he said that that envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. You know, there is um, a story in um, ancient Jewish history 
where an angel comes and he visits a shopkeeper who was known for envying all of his rival shopkeepers in the area. And the angel offers him whatever he wishes. And the story goes on and where the angel says, I I will give you whatever it is that you wish, but there is a warning that comes. And the warning is this, is that all of your competitors will receive twice as much as whatever it is that you ask of. And so the shopkeeper stops and he thinks, what am I going to ask for? What am I going to ask for that I have to realize that the other people are going to get twice as much? And he turns back to the angel and he says, well, then I ask to be blind in one eye. I ask to be blind in one eye. And for those of you who are looking at me, that means the other people would be blind in both eyes. Solomon said that wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? The man was envious of everybody else, so let me cripple them so that I am still the most successful one. Envy makes us sick, church. It rots and it ruins your life and it takes aim at the lives of the people around you those in your circle of influence, and it begins to dry out your soul. Now, I want to take five minutes, and I want to share with us a few ways that envy really works its way out in this life. So the first one I want you to know is that it drains your ability to rejoice. It drains your ability to rejoice. You know, instead of Israel waking up In the text, knowing that there was manna for them and and worshiping God and thanking them and rejoicing in his goodness and grace, they complained and groaned to their spiritual leader. Did you see it? They went to Moses. They went to Moses and they complained. We have the same issue. We have the same issue. Every church leader across America and every foreign country, they have the same issue. The the congregants complain at the spiritual leader when oftentimes it's something in their own life that needs to be looked at. It's something in their own life And we think if we could just go and have that or be there or if our worship service could look like that or if we could sing this song or our walls could be painted this color, then everything would just be okay and we would have all the joy in the world to worship God. That's not true, church. It's not. In all reality, we wouldn't worship God if we had those things. Why? Because we're just like the kid with the toy. We're just like the kid with the seat. We're just like the kid with the treat. And at the very core of this life, we we think that God was unfair and he gave us some bad deal. And so we don't really want to trust him. And because of that, we're not going to rejoice. It's an internal problem. Yet, I read portion after portion after portion of Scripture 
that commands the believer to rejoice. Philippians 4.4, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say what? Rejoice. You know, Paul, in, in a lot of Paul's writings, he, he seems especially focused on the idea that rejoicing is to take place at all times in the life of a believer. I mean, we often forget that Paul wrote those very words there on the screen for us. He wrote those words while he was a prisoner in Rome. Rejoice in the Lord always. I mean, Paul had been wrongfully accused and arrested. He was shipwrecked on the way to prison. Shipwrecked. After the shipwreck, he was bitten by a venomous snipe, uh, by, by a venomous snake. You guys remember this? You guys tracking, right? And then he was put under house arrest for two years, chained to a jailer. Paul had every single right to complain or envy the believers that were outside of his situation, and yet he focused on rejoicing. I mean, Paul's joy. And this life was, was not based in, in some sunny optimism and, and some positive mental attitude and, and just think positive and everything's going to turn out okay. No. Paul's joy was based in the fact that he had confidence that God was in control of every situation. I mean, that verse there on the screen was a command telling the believer how we were to live this life. Rejoice in the Lord always. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, rejoice. And when we are in the grips of envy, that's the last thing that you and I want to do. Rejoice. I mean, envy drains us of our ability to thank God for the things that we have. But envy also makes us despise other people. You ever had a time in your life and... and this is totally rhetorical. Please don't raise your hand and, and don't incriminate yourself this morning. Have you ever had a time in your life where you began to grow critical of another person? Where you couldn't maintain a friendship with somebody? Maybe you, you couldn't even be in the same room as your spouse. You'd be... You've come to a place where you had become so critical. Or what about this one, right? The, the one that nobody really wants to talk about. What about finding the right church? Right? Picky, picky, picky. The pastor made me feel really bad because he spoke out of the word of God. They have really ugly carpet. They have a, they have a drum set on the stage. They did the contemporary version of Amazing Grace and not the hymn. They use, they use the ESV and not the NIV. Picky, picky, picky. You can't be joy-filled and so the ultimate outcome is that you don't want others to be joy-filled. And the idea that you should be happy for somebody else is beyond your comprehension. 
envy despises the blessings that occur in the lives of other people. It creates disdain. And so really envy is just being bitter when other people are being blessed. It's the, the jealousy, really, the, the, the rivalry, the, the comparison branch of the seven deadly sins. I mean, it should, it, should be getting, it should be getting this for me, or I'm better than that person. So why did God give them that? I can't stand that. I mean, think about the biblical example that we see in the Old Testament, not, not just in Israel's case. I, uh, I wrote a paper for school probably three and a half or maybe four years ago. I was in a, I was in a, a homiletics class. Um, homiletics is, is um, essentially the science of how to preach or, or how to prepare sermons. And I was in, I'm in this class, and we had to take a portion of Scripture that was assigned to us by uh, our professor, and then we had to come up with a sermon based upon this. And I was remembering all the way back to that time several years ago, and I couldn't help but think of the biblical example in the Old Testament of Saul and David. How many of you know uh, the, the Saul and David um, saga in the Old Testament, right? So the Israelites came to this point where they were singing out loud, Saul had slain his thousands, but David had slain his tens of thousands. You guys tracking with me? Like those of you who have been in church, you're like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, right. Right, 1 Samuel chapter 18 comes on onto the, the scene in scripture and Saul in essence says, who does this guy think he is? about David. And as you begin to read through the first nine verses of 1 Samuel chapter 18, you come to verse number nine, and you really see encapsulated in this one verse how Saul was envious of David. And it says that Saul eyed David from that day forward. Saul eyed David from that day forward. From that moment, the only thing that Saul could think about was eliminating David. And if you continue on with the the Saul and David saga, you realize that, that Saul tries to spear David to a wall. Not once, but two different times. I mean, he chased him all over the known world at that time. And in the end, Saul is the one being ended up killed by a spear. The same weapon that he tried to kill David with, he ended up being killed himself with. Saul's thoughts had been completely twisted by envy, and in the end, it was envy that killed him. Envy makes you and I despise other people. And just one more way that envy dries out and rots out and ruins this life is that it destroys your capacity to be grateful and generous. Envy gives birth to ingratitude. It chokes your generosity and it will not allow you to give. I mean, you would rather watch someone suffer and struggle than to step in and sacrifice and serve. I mean, let somebody else do it. I mean, when we are envious, we're not thinking of what we have. 
We're thinking of what we don't have and why we shouldn't give any of what we have. I mean, envy clogs up the channel of blessing that we are to be in the lives of other people. I want you to think about it with me for a moment. This is the exact opposite of what God did for us through Jesus Christ. The exact opposite. God in his love gave us the greatest gift. He gave us the manna from heaven, the bread of life. And it's only by receiving the bread of life that we can be cured from our envy. I mean, envy dries out your life. And so as we begin to to make our descent here to the end, the second thing I want you to realize is that envy can only be dealt with through the gospel. It can only be dealt with through the gospel. You and I can't fix the issue of envy in our life. Only Jesus Christ can. Only Jesus Christ. But the problem is, and it's often that we don't recognize, people despise Jesus. People despise Jesus. I mean, they they scoff at the very cure that he gives to them. And go all the way back to the Gospels with me for just a moment. John chapter 6. Jesus begins to have this conversation with the Jews. And he tells them that he is the bread of life. I want you to look on the screen with me. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you know that conversation, John chapter 6, began with Jesus correcting the false motives of the people. Before he even said that piece there on the screen. The, the, the Jewish people saw the miraculous works of God just 24 hours before this where Jesus fed the, the thousands of people. And so they sought Jesus again at Capernaum in John chapter 6. And Christ immediately pointed out that their interest was not for spiritual truth. It was simply for more free food. And rather, Jesus says that they ought to be pursuing a food that will endure for eternal life. And when the people asked Jesus for the bread of life, Jesus responded that this bread actually came in the form of a person. Him, sent by God. And those who believe in that person are given everlasting or eternal life. Jesus was specifically pointing to himself as the bread of life, which is really the first usage of the divine I am phrasing that we see in the gospel of John. You know, when, it, when, when Jesus initially claimed that he was the bread of life and that eternal life was offered in him, the people were indignant. They were indignant. They demanded that Jesus perform uh, another miracle in order to prove himself despite having just witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle. 
And they invoked in their conversation the miracle of manna that was given to Israel right here in the text that we saw this morning. They almost dared Jesus to do something more spectacular than the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That very challenge was already fulfilled. It was already done. And the manna that Israel received in the Old Testament was merely a material thing. It fed their body, but those bodies still died. And so Jesus is like, people, don't confuse God's earthly wonders and their spiritual meanings. Don't confuse it. The people needed to seek eternal heavenly things instead of earthly perishable things. I mean, Jesus explicitly stated at the beginning of his ministry and and as his role as the living bread that came down from heaven, that he was superior to the manna that the people saw in the Old Testament. I mean, the manna found in the Old Testament was meant to be a prophecy of Jesus Christ, and we often overlook that. Do you guys remember anything about the manna talked about in the Old Testament? Because the very property of the manna indicates the very nature of Jesus. The manna was something very small, indicating humility. It was white, indicating Jesus' coming purity. It was round. It was a symbol of eternality. And it arrived at night in complete and utter darkness is when it came. Jesus came in the midst of complete and utter spiritual darkness. He was the manna. The manna was the prophecy that Jesus was going to come. And so manna, right? like salvation in Christ, could only be received. It could not be earned or made. Manna provided the people with only two options in the Old Testament. You either accept that manna and you live, or you disrespect it by walking right over it, which leads to spiritual and physical death. And so that same choice that same choice, and really only those two options face all people when it comes to Christ. You either accept Christ and live, or you disrespect him by walking right on by him, which leads to spiritual and physical death. That's it. Just those two options. Church, the the people in Scripture despised Jesus. In fact, people today still despise Jesus. And that's what envy does. It looks past the good in people to, to hate them. Do you know... That that very thought of looking past good and hating another person is evil. It is is evil personified. 
But do you know what Jesus did? Do you know what Jesus did in this place? He looked past our evil and he loved us. And that's the very message of the gospel. It's only by receiving the bread of life that we can be healed and made whole. As I began to think about that very thought of bread and how Jesus is the bread of life, I began to work out in my head um, is there anyone else who's a, a bread lover in here this morning? Okay, a good number of you. I, I'm not alone. I began thinking about how bread is often received. Right? It's broken. It's sliced. It's torn apart before it's eaten. Right? It's cut. Something happens to that bread before it's consumed. Right, Jesus suffered in the same manner as he paid for sin and made salvation possible. He was broken. He was cut. He was torn so that it could be received. And we must receive that bread of life. We must accept what he has done in order to be made whole. And I love that Peter Right, the, the disciple who had um, the disease of word vomit. The disciple that said all the things before he thought. And he gives us, he gives us this beautiful picture in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he says this, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and what? and envy, and all slander. And he says, And like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So if you would just hang tight on that verse for a moment. Peter says that as the believer, you are to set aside all unloving attitudes and actions. And after you've done that, right, you are to crave something other than your own selfish gratification. Do you notice that the Christian is being commanded about what to want here in this, this portion of Scripture? We've been told what to crave. Why? Because our appetite does not always want the pure spiritual milk. We don't crave that. In fact, we don't long for that either. We don't wake up one morning, and if you do, please come and share with me what you're doing differently. But we don't roll out of bed every single day and we're like, yes! Christ is it, yeah! And if you are, I'm serious. I want you to come. I want you to please come and, and share with me because church, I'm telling you right now, it does not come easy. I've been a Christian for more than 80% of my life. I've devoted the last 15 years of my life to studying the word of God and wanting to live a righteous and a holy life. And I can tell you that most mornings I get out of bed, my first thought is not let's open up the word of God. 
My first thought is, oh my gosh, my kids are running up and down the stairs and it's only 5.45 in the morning. Or my first thought is my child is, is screaming because he wants another bottle and he only slept for two hours. My wife didn't turn the fan and now it's blowing in my face and my mouth is completely dry. We laugh, but that's the reality, church. I mean, it is funny to, to take a step back, right? And, and, and to think about it. I wish, I wish with every ounce of energy in my body, that sanctification came like our packages from Amazon. That we just submit something to God and 48 hours later, because I have prime, it appears in a package on my front door. And the moment that I open up, joy is going to fill my life. And love is going to fill my life. And peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, that it's just going to be there because I asked God for it. But that's not how sanctification works. And we get angry because we read our Bible for three days and nothing changed. And so, Pastor, how do you develop an appetite for pure spiritual milk? How do you do that? You have to start drinking it. You have to start drinking it. How many of you in here, moms... Do you remember back when your children, maybe it was a long time ago, but do you remember when your kids were infants? Do you guys remember that? Do you ever remember a time where your infant rejected the very milk that they were crying for until they got a taste of it? And then as soon as they got that taste, what did they do? They sucked that bottle down as fast as they could because it was exactly what they needed. You guys, you, guys, you guys know what I'm talking about? That's what Peter's talking about right here. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the Christian is to crave this milk like the newborn, even the mature believer. And before you're like, well, wait, wait, wait. Paul said... We are supposed to move from milk to meat. You're absolutely right, but don't confuse what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and what Peter is saying right here because it's two different things. Two completely different things. Paul was saying you need to grow up to learn and discern and walk in the deeper things of Scripture. Peter is saying every Christian is supposed to love the Word of God and is supposed to drink it every single day. We're supposed to love it. Church, you and I are never going to wake up one morning in this life on this side of eternity where our spiritual growth has come to a, an aspect of completion. It's not going to happen. God will continue to sanctify you until the moment that he calls you and I home. And so for you and I, we have to have a hunger for pure spiritual milk. And so you're like, Pastor, what is pure spiritual milk? Don't shoot the messenger. It's the undiluted and uncontaminated word of God. That's what it is. 
That doesn't mean I'm, I'm listening to some wackadoo pastor or reading some wackadoo book and you're like, this is the undulate. No. I've told our Bible studies on Wednesday nights that there is one interpretation and multiple applications of Scripture. And if that Scripture is, is interpreted in some other way than the exact meaning of that writer, then it's false. It's false. It has to be unadulterated. And when we begin to drink that pure spiritual milk, when we take in the word of God, when we, when we draw close to God, we will grow up into salvation, as Peter says. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, and so for you and I, taking in the, the milk of God's word is the intended path for spiritual growth. It's the intended path. It's, it's the medicine for your and my sick soul. Our life may seem dried up, but we need the word of God. We, we don't need all of the other things that we think we have to have in order to make us delight in Christ. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, we receive the goodness and the grace of God and we're free from the enslavement of envy. Church, nothing that anyone has compares to what's already been given to you through Jesus Christ. And so you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make right now here in the service. You don't have to run up here and tell me. I'd be open if you wanted to, to talk to me. But you don't have to run up here and tell me. You have a choice to make between you and God. Am I, am I going to choose manna, accept it and live? Or I'm going to disrespect it, walk right on by it, and walk a very fast track to spiritual and physical death? That's up to you. It's up to you. And so this is what I, I believe we need to end with. I'm going to just ask for you to spend the next two minutes alone with the Lord. You can come right here to the altar. You can stay in your seat. You need to get alone with the Lord and, and need to ask Him. You need to seek Him about where you are right now on, on this day, April 30th, 2023. Where am I at, God? Have I been embracing the manna, the life that you've been giving through your word? Am I craving the pure spiritual milk or am I passing right over top of it? If I... Am I craving something else that will never truly satisfy the God-sized hole in my life? And then ask him what steps you need to take because guess what? The word of God told us that we need to start drinking the word. We need to start drinking it. And when you drink it, you will taste and you will see that the Lord is good. Doesn't mean everything's going to work out the way that you think it might work out or how you think it should.
but you'll, you'll see that, that God is good. And so, if you could, Israel, if you could just go ahead and um, play some light, light music here. And I'm just going to give you the next few minutes of time. Get alone with the Lord. I'll pray in just a, a moment and, and you will be sent 